Welcome to another edition of Against the Current. I'm Dan Proft, co-host of Chicago's Morning Answer, weekdays 5 to 9 a.m. with Amy Jacobson on AM560. And my guest on this installment is Scott Shalady, Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, to be more specific. Make sure to keep the branding consistent. Uh, we're coming to you atop the uh, Old Republic building at the Skyline Club in downtown Chicago. Scott Shalady, who's a financial services professional, runs a trading desk for a hedge fund in London and is a Fox Business contributor. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be here. And you can also catch Scott, of course, on uh, our show regularly where we pour over the phony baloney jobs <laughs> numbers every right. month. Um, so let's just talk tariffs right out the gate oh. because uh, the trade skirmish, I, I don't want to call it a war yet, it's a trade conflict like Korea, is it just a conflict? It continues to escalate with uh, President Trump continuing to stick it to China and China continuing to stick it back to us at a, a lower threshold. But now we're getting to the kind of like intermediate goods that Trump is targeting. And so that will translate into higher prices for American consumers for things like personal computers and all the electronics. Um, how concerned are you about uh, the trade policy of the Trump administration sort of metastasizing from a skirmish to a war and the promise that Larry Kudlow, his chief economic advisor, made of this is all at play to ultimately in the medium term, if not short term, get to a lower tariff environment across the board, that that's not something that's feasible? Well, there's a lot of answers. Number one is I don't think <clears throat> it will ultimately be a war I, I, because both sides have a, a, a decaying option. Donald Trump's got uh, political goodwill capital, but that's not a, a bottomless well. He's going to run out of that at some point in time. And at the same time, we've got China, and literally their, their economy is melting in, in their hands. However, I think that if push comes to shove, they'd be willing, as not a Western government, to sacrifice three million people and their deaths to win some sort of trade war. It's whether or not that they can come to the table and Donald can give them a chance to look like they won something. So I think they both have a diminishing position, and I don't think it's going to go on forever because I just don't think he's got the attention for it to be go on forever. I mean, nothing in his life has gone on forever. Well, what about the Chinese? It's interesting you point out the communists, obviously, and so uh, in the very, in the Stalinist tradition, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, mm -hmm. and that's the approach they take. But there's a countervailing pressure that that communist regime has for legitimacy too, which is. Uh, as a previous Chinese premier said, 25 million jobs a year. We have to create 25 million jobs a year to keep the populace uh, satiated and to keep me and all my criminal friends in power. And so you know, how do you try and assess where that tipping point is? Be well, because for the last, I don't know, how long would you call their economy as quote unquote on fire booming? Say 20 years maybe? I don't know. I mean, they were using more concrete than we ever made in our entire life on an annual basis. Yeah, but are we to believe that the Chinese numbers of 7 and 8% GDP growth? No, we're not. But what I'm trying to say is that they took, I don't know how many millions of people off of bicycles and put them into cars. Yeah. They, they stopped having to eat rice, now they're eating steak. Watch that Chinese government try to take those guys off out of those cars and put them back on the bike. Because I think nowadays with technology, there's so much more information out there. I know they block a lot of things, but a lot of things do get through still. I think that that would, that would be a massive revolt in China. I mean, we had Tiananmen Square without any social media. What would happen when you've got all of this technology out there and you try to take that guy out of his car 
and stop feeding them steak. I think that's a huge problem for the Chinese government, and I think they know that. And, and do you think Trump knows that, and he thinks that we can take a little short-term pain because they can't? 100%. And if you want to talk to the smartest guys in the room, you know, like, they'll like tell the you. Like Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> They're all in cell block C. Um, they tell me that, and Bannon alluded to this when he said, that's the, that's the hill that Trump is willing to die on, meaning that he is trying to get a coalition of the old NAFTA, hopefully Canada joins in, as well as the EU and Japan to disrupt the world trade order like it's never been disrupted again. He's going after China and he wants to do with those three, you know, those three economic blocks. That's his ultimate goal, says Bannon. Maybe that's his general cluster moment, I'm not quite sure yet. But at the end of the day, they say that's his goal and that's what he's gonna to try to get done in hopefully eight years. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the essential, without saying it explicitly, Kudlow is essentially saying Trump is transactional and this is a strategic play. The concern that free marketeers like me have, and perhaps you as a free marketeer, is that around him, the counterbalance to Kudlow are uh, protectionist ideologues like Lighthizer, his trade rep, and yep. Peter Navarro. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, how, you know, how do you make an assessment there? I, I, I don't know who he listens, you know, who, to whom he listens to most. Um, but all we need is a little bit of a victory to keep him on the on the Cudlow side of things, rather than if things don't go well, I think that he'll revert to the old old time taxes of, of what we used to be like. But we, I haven't still, I, all, in all the talks and all the TV shows uh, and all the people I've spoken to, nobody's really been able to sit down with me and say, this is why it's a good idea to let China continue to do what they're doing. That, that I've just never had that conversation. And what, what, to let China continue doing, doing what it's been doing means what exactly? Pirating uh, intellectual property from the U.S.? I mean, that's one of the bigger ones, but they also, it's against WTO rules to help fund your own internal companies to compete with other foreign companies. And, and the last thing is this, I mean, Trump's done a great job with the media and, and pulling their pants down to the rest of the world and showing them what they really are, right? Well, the WTO, who everybody kind of defaults to in these types of disputes or you know, problems, st still has China listed as a, you know, a developing country, although 25% of the Fortune 500 companies are headquartered there. Yeah, but that's because half the population is still agrarian and the government controls more than 50% of the means of production. Well, that might be why they're still a developing country, but and, at the end of that, how can you be... How, well, well how, why they haven't realized the strength of their, you know, look, for how many billion thousands, people. For thousands of years, this is why I'm not worried about them. Thousands of years they've had more, um, economic, more uh, land resource, more natural resource than anybody out there, really. I mean, look what they can pull out of the ground, number one. And number two is they have more people. You are off to a fantastic start if you've got more natural resource than anybody and more people than anybody, and they haven't been able to put it together. So that's a bad coach. And so uh, as you think about this, though, with respect to trade policy, now bring it to North America and Trump's approach, strategery, with uh, Mexico and Canada in terms of renegotiating NAFTA, where he essentially gets, uh, Na uh, gets uh, Mexico on board before there's a change in power in Mexico, and he really puts pressure on that drama teacher who's the Prime Minister of Canada <laughs> to uh, fold in as well. How did you assess that? I, I think, I believe, believe it or not, I think maybe Trudeau might have done a decent job of, of holding out some things that he'll ultimately get let go, like the, the dairy tariffs or something like that, which aren't, 
are minuscule in terms of percentage of the whole deal that he might let go and, and still be able to claim victory and Trump can claim victory. I mean, he's done an okay job there. I'm not a fan of his at all whatsoever, but ultimately they're going to have to come to the table if he's going to get the EU and Japan and then Mexico and, and the US together to try to do something with disrupting trade with China. Canada's not going to be left behind. Now, as an aside, and since you're Scott the Cow Guy, this is sort of wheelhouse for you. Um, what about uh, some sort of concession by the Canadians to put milk in a carton where it belongs rather than a bag? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and so well, off-putting. Well, you exa- like, like wine, too, right? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have to talk to the Californians about that as well. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, when 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 I looked at those the, the tariffs when it came to dairy, you know, it, it's 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 uh, you know the rates are usurious, but um, it's not a big part of any big trading thing. I mean, it blocks, so it's not. But he'll be able to claim victory after he either a lowers them or gets rid of them, and and it's not going to be too serious. But if you're a farmer in Wisconsin, it's it's pretty serious right now. But also, we've got an issue with our own glut of milk on the market here too. I mean, there's other internal issues. I mean, the, the U.S. farmer getting away from dairy for a second is probably one of the most efficient businesses in the in the US because year in and year out they continue to deliver as long as mother nature complies a little bit a, a bumper crop i mean they're feeding the world so truly what i think what's the statistic like every far, every US farmer feeds like 152 people i don't i don't know the exact it's it's, it's something you know so they, they they're very yeah it is substantial but they're very very good and very very efficient the US farmer is a businessman like you've never seen them you yeah. should see some of their offices it looks like a trading desk, number yeah. one. I mean, but also they're in the most deflationary environment I've ever seen any business have to operate in. Think about it. In the 1930s, they pulled out 40 bushels of corn per acre. Now they're over 200. I mean, that's the same plot of land. Right. What does that do to your pricing? Right. So it's amazing that they're still here today. Obviously, they have to be a bit, you know, bigger and have more scale to handle those type of negatives. But the U.S. farmer is 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 just blowing the doors off of, of things, and they just don't get the credit because it's a difficult thing to do. Another difficult thing to do, though, is to explain to the American populace about um, improvements in technology and efficiency of production, like you're talking about in, in farming. The same holds true for manufacturing, where manufacturing is not disappearing and farming is not disappearing, but a lot of the jobs are because of technological innovation that just makes higher production with fewer people, the reality on the ground. I mean, and that goes through, you know, one of the stats I talked to you about earlier was trucking with, you know, 27 other states, trucking is the number one industry. And technology wants to put all those truckers off the road with driverless cabs, right? Yeah. Whose idea is that? I mean, who's coming up with that? Destroying those people's lives. And of all the people, I think it's the number one business for anybody that doesn't have a high school degree. So, I mean, we've got some, uh, just like we had in the Industrial Revolution, there's going to be some angst here, and there's going to be some collateral damage, unfortunately. Um, and who knows? They say that white collar can be maybe the first to go because those decision-making processes are easier to explain in artificial intelligence than a lot of the other things that a blue-collar p- person does in a day. I'd be happy to see all the vice presidents that tell our paper. Right, exactly. go, go the way of the dodo I, bird, I mean, no you problem. Walk in, you walk into a bank and there's nobody on the first floor anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, so, right. Th- I mean, there are um, a lot of scare tactics, tactics out there, but uh, ultimately technology is going to be a good thing because we have to think about the positives. I mean, health and, and, and you know what, what, what you can do going forward for prolonging your life. but. We have a, a technological revolution like the Industrial Revolution where there's going to be a lot of pain. 
the uh, Schumpeterian creative or gales of creative destruction. Let's pull back for a second, though, since we're on the topic of farming and you're Scott the cow guy. Um, just kind of explain your background and your family's background that uh, led you to be Scott the yeah, cow well, guy. And I was um, I was up there this business. week. We have a family farm. We bought in the early '70s. My father did, um, and he happened to be also a trader at the Chicago Board of Trade in the corn pit, right? So that was pretty appropriate. And generally speaking, every time there was some sort of calamity in the markets, the markets got busier and he did well. But usually that meant there was some sort of destruction out in the fields, right? And so over the next 25 years, he was able to buy a bunch of land and make it one farm. And so we grow soybeans and corn. And anyway. And this is where? In Galena, in Galena, Illinois, northwest Illinois, in the corner up by the Mississippi River. So. He decided, because we also milked 200 head of cattle, uh, which is a different farming, which is much more difficult than putting plants in the ground, yeah. um, that when the visitors gallery was full at the Chicago Board of Trade with visitors coming to watch what was happening down there, so the, you know, the exchange would keep trying to say over and over again, this is not a gambling, this is not Las Vegas, they're actually doing an economic, performing an economic function, blah, 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 um, then he would wear a Holstein jacket there was a brightly colored jacket, so nobody had ever worn an animal print before because he wanted people up in the gallery to go, what is that guy doing? Yeah, right? Right. And so he was able to push the message that there is an eco economic function, this does serve a purpose, it is not just gambling, and this is where you know the farmers come to price their grain, and it's one of the biggest businesses in the country. And how much cattle wrestling did you do in your day? I, I, didn't, do, I didn't do any, but we had 200 head of cattle, and we got the bright idea to milk them three times a day, six, noon, and six. So I was up there on the weekends for my penance, and I complained all the way up and all the way back, two and a half hours each way. But it was a great, a great way to learn, um, you know, because you've got all these people outside striking or hating Wall Street, the 99 percenters, right, all that stuff. Well, you know, if you take the farmer, all these people out of it, you're going to actually have to go out and do some work, right? You can't sit in Starbucks and have your coffee on your iPad. I mean, you're going to have to bend over and do something. Right, so be careful what you wish for if you want to get rid of all these people because there are some things that you're benefiting from even though you don't know it. I mean, there is a lot of work that goes into what you do on, on a, you know, an average daily basis on your consumption. So, Well, right, and, and a topic that's not uh, often uh, uh, the focus of conversation on the Mag Mile is the reality is Illinois agribusiness is the biggest industry in the state. So once you get outside of, uh, once you go south of Taylor Street, oh, <laughs> right, by the right. way, there's a whole other state called Illinois, as the saying goes, uh, with respect to farming and the importance of agribusiness to economic vitality in this state and in the Midwest. And you know what? I don't, the last thing I'll say on the subject, not that I want to get off of the subject, but in this world is so crazy. And every day, every day something happens in either politics or sports or something that you just shake your head and think, how do they come up to, how do they get to that conclusion? You know, just 30 years ago you could say, oh, I see a little bit about how they can come where, get where they're going. I, I, wouldn't go, I would have gone A to B, not A to C to B. But anyway, it's the last industry that I think that those guys get out of bed, look outside, it's raining, I'm not going outside. They've got the last, they're the last bastion of common sense. And, and when you sit around the tavern with those guys, there is no baloney. They say it like it is, and they're truthful 99% of the time. And it's just comforting to know that I can count on where they're going to be at the end of this road because of their decision-making process, because it's just so commonsensical. So maybe the play for Illinois to rescue it from the financial abyss is to raise Chicago, all the skyscrapers, and turn it into farmland. Well, they'd make more money, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Remember the joke, is it 
you're not going to put a farmer out of business by, by wind or rain or some sort of weather catastrophe, but if you back over his mailbox. <laughs> I love that joke. I love that. It's right up there with my Department of Ag yeah. guy joke, yeah, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Guy walks into the Department of Ag and he's, he's a, a bureaucratic clerk at the desk on his, you know, with his head down crying. He says, what's wrong? And the Department of Ag employee says, my farmer died. <laughs> yeah, so, so right. the same, same concept of, you know, indictment of government and also uh, a uh, hat tip to uh, farmers. Um, speaking of Illinois, though, as you were mentioning, you're an uh, Illinois native son, but you live in Indiana now. And just getting off of kind of macroeconomics for a second, just your own personal experience, I think it's instructive. What, you're a successful guy. You make a good deal of money. You move from Chicago Metro to Northwest Indiana. And what was the difference? Well, I mean, it's... It's mind-boggling. I was renting my house back off the government every year for a big ticket, and more than I made in my first job at a university with a finance degree. And it got to the point where I thought, this is insane. I mean, it's just, and, and I, I mean, I, my next door neighbor who was paying for his children to go to very expensive Catholic schools was also still paying on top of that too. Right. And yes, I can make the argument it goes for the goods and services in your local area, and hopefully, you know, higher, the higher the price of the house, the more taxes and the better the services. But there also comes a point where that doesn't just, that doesn't work out. And also, as you go down to the lesser income areas, that percentage that they're paying on the value of their house is greater. So they're actually taking it worse in the pants. So you can go across the border, pay 20% of the tax you were paying here. You've got a, a, a budget over there that's in surplus. They've got... To, to, I mean, just to kind of 20%, one-fifth of the tax burden you were paying in Illinois. Yeah. On the same square footage. And, and, you're, and you're how far from downtown Chicago? I'm 40 miles. Naperville. So, right. Wheaton, where I grew up, that's yeah. 40 miles. Right. So it's, it's pretty hard to argue against doing that. And obviously, it's, it's an easy argument because you've seen the numbers. And people vote with their feet when they, when they get fed up. And I can tell you right now, I still have a sister and a brother that live in this state. And they've got kids in high school. And they just, they're wishing their lives away to get the kids out of high school so when they go to college, they can move. Whether that it may be Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, but you know, and so it's it's a shame. But the more people that leave, obviously, you know the numbers. It's this downward spiral that they can't get out of, and I don't know how you're going to get out of it with the unfunded, unfunded pension liabilities. Where, where where does this stop? And I don't know if it's just ha you have to throw your your hands in the air and say oh, we're bankrupt. We can't do it anymore. I mean, I don't know if the numbers already don't show that already. I mean, how? What are the, what is the state going to do to get out of the problem? Well, when you look at, I mean, look at this from your financial uh, perspective and you've got a state that's got a quarter billion a quarter of trillion dollars in debt 30 billion dollars in assets and uh, hemorrhaging population the only state to lose population four years in a row other than West Virginia uh, and you're talking about what's happening in the neighboring states not to mention states that are on fire like Tennessee and South Carolina Florida Texas um, you know how does this if this was a private sector corporation, the state of Illinois, how would this end? Well, the head coach would have been fired seven times over. I mean, you can't keep giving the ball back to the guy that's when you're one and seven every year. I mean, and I don't understand the mentality. I just don't. And, and so it's almost like somebody else has to step in and go and shake people and say, well, are you continuing to go down this path? It's a path, path of suicide. It's like Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, it's, it is like Stockholm Syndrome. And so they've become, 
they, they're in love with their captors and they keep letting you know voting them back in but it's, it can't go on forever that's the problem and some there's going to be some collateral damage and it's going to be some little old ladies that have thought they had a pension or thought they had everything set up for the rest of their lives and there's not going to be there's going to be 20 percent of what they thought was going to be there there and then what happens i mean there's we're talking about real people and i know some of those people and it's just not there I mean, so what do you do? Do you have to take a haircut and raise taxes? I mean, and then you're going to lose more people anyway. I mean, there's no easy way out except for throwing your hands in the air and saying, help. Well, and speaking of all of us, Patty Hearst here in uh, <laughs> Chicago and Illinois, uh, the biggest differential you're describing, you know, one-fifth of the tax burden in Northwest Indiana versus Chicago, it's property taxes. And so thinking now, going back to macro, uh, Beth, Bethany McLean, who's written books on the uh, both Enron as well as the the crash in 2007-2008, uh, as we're now more than a decade removed from that, do we not see Freddie, uh, Freddie and Fannie re-blowing up the housing bubble that burst in 2007-2008? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, the numbers are greater than they were in 08 already. Um, I, but I think we're in a different, I mean, so are the student loan numbers, so are the car auto loan numbers. I mean, but I think we're right now in a little bit of a different time where the bank, banking sector had to go through some health checks. I and mean, they're a lot healthier today, that's for sure, than they were back in 08. So is that blacks, you know, black, the definition of black sun is you can't see it coming. I can't see it coming. That doesn't mean it's not going to come. But I don't think it's going to come from that banking sector per se or those uh, no doc loans that we were, they were doing for you know the strippers that had five houses in Las Vegas, <laughs> but I, I I think that it's not good, but I don't think it's um, as unsustainable as it was ten years ago. And so uh, you're uh, a colleague in the space, Rick Santelli, the Godfather of CNBC's Rick Santelli, who's uh, lives in Wheaton, where I grew up, by the way. Uh, also, so Chicago Metro guy, uh, he says the thing that concerns him the most in terms of uh, near term future uncertainty is the unwinding of a decade of quantitative easing, easy money uh, by the Fed. We've never seen that, uh, that, that duration of easy money. We've never seen the Fed pursue that policy for that long a time. And uh, how that works itself out is the thing that most concerns him about the near-term future. Is that uh, a, a similar preeminent concern for you? Yeah, it's very valid. And he, what he's saying is we, we, no one's ever done what we did to get into the problem, and so no one's ever really had to do anything to get out of the problem. And the problem is the fiat money that we saw happen. When the politicians decided that rather than do nothing and get in trouble, they'd do something and get in trouble because they couldn't be seen to be not doing anything. Right. I mean, it was, it was a bad situation to be in, I'll give them that. However, he's a big normalizer and wants rates to get back to where they are, and I, and I agree with that. The problem is, is a lot of times we get a little bit Americentric and with the Bank of Japan printing money like they're all going to expire tomorrow, it keeps a lid on a lot of the things that the normalizers would like to see happen here in the States because of the cross-money flows. So the rest of the world's giving away cheap money, and the U.S. is trying to have their rates get a little higher. There's a natural ceiling to that when you've got what's happening with the ECB, the European Central Bank, as well as the Bank of Japan, two of the biggest five central banks out there, are giving away money. And so that's distorting our exit, and that's a problem too. So if they were all raising rates, we're the only central bank that's been raising, the only big you know, economic central bank raising rates right now. Think about it. I mean, they're, they're, no one else is, oh, the UK did it once. 
but we're on a path like nobody else is, but we're still having this ball and chain of Europe and Asia still giving away cash, and that's really going to stunt or retard that type of growth that Santelli wants to see happen. Well, so, I mean, as Mark Stein infamously said, uh, the Japan would have been better to invent the walker rather than the walkman, <laughs> right? And so, so Japan, Europe, America, uh, for certainly Japan and most of Western Europe, you've got... Uh, uh, birth rates that are below replacement level. And so they're trying to prop up the welfare states. And America is doing the same thing with $80, billion, $80 trillion, excuse me, in unfunded entitlement liabilities. And so are we just in this sort of pocket where we've got a debt loads and unfunded liabilities we can't really handle, but the rest of the world outside of America, Europe, Japan, Asia, is still trying to play catch up, so we've got this period of time where we can still get away with bad economic policy, both monetary and fiscal. That's exactly right. And I was, and to your point of uh, birth rates, and you know, I, I can simplify it for anybody that's watching this, right? And, and, and no money manager wants to hear anybody say it. But at the end of the day, if your population isn't growing, your economy is not going to grow. Bottom line, and. My friends will say, well, why do you say that? I said, because you need to give birth to new customers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the bottom yeah, line. Right. So when you start to have the birth death rate set reverse, like Japan has had, and you're not making any new customers, you're going you're gonna to have a negative growth rate. I mean, it's just the way it is. So that's why we go back, you know, that's the bigger issue, like terrorist immigration. I mean, that's why you'll see some economists like the idea of letting more people in because it will help at some point in time prop up the economy because you've invited new customers in. And, and Right, and, and so that makes sense. I mean, legal immigration, vetted immigration, bring people in who want to work and want to contribute and um, guest worker programs and all those things that have been discussed. Obviously, the political problem is if you don't have a handle on the vetting process, if you don't have a handle on who's who you're letting in and you have people in this country illegally who commit violent crimes or acts of terrorism, then you have people just shut down entirely and say, well, I'm not interested in hearing anything you have to say about guest worker programs or the need to import labor because I'm not convinced that you're doing a good job keeping us safe with respect to who's coming in. And so that really has, so that, so, you know, this is where sort of a social policy has real economic impacts that are not often talked about. Well, I mean, I don't know. And, and including by the C-suite corporate types who are, you know, Cisepoiding uh, out in the streets of Chicago, but they're not providing the full explanation and all the context that turns out to be really important if you want to bring people along. And, and I wish I had the, I don't have the numbers, but I don't know what the violent crime was by illegal immigrants or undocumented aliens 50 years ago, 40 years ago. I yeah. don't know. That'd be interesting to see because is it because I hear about it more, but it's not at any greater pace than it was back then? Or I, however, I. You know, we, I, I, I'm married to an immigrant, and it, it took her seven years to get to become a U.S. citizen with her family, and they came over on the boat. And I, believe it or not, when I went to London in 1990 as a fresh-faced 24-year-old kid, I got a green card to work there that expired in three years. But all the while I was on that green card, anytime I moved house or flats or whatever they call them, I had to register the next day at my local police station. Now, try to get people to do that here today. And you know what? I gladly They didn't have sanctuary hamlets in, in <laughs> no, England exactly at the time. Right. Yeah. I gladly did it because I understood why they were doing it. Yeah. You know, because it made sense to me, and I, it still makes sense to me. Um, but for some reason, 
I, we've lost the plot a little bit about trying to prop up maybe the economy or garner votes, um, and, and we've taken our eye off the ball about what it really means to be become an American, go through the process, and actually wave the flag with some pride instead of it's a business card. So going back to um, the issue of, of immigration globally and the concern about um, the quantitative easing, the easy money, so what's the the worst case scenario, since you're sort of a pessimist by yeah. disposition, the worst case scenario of not figuring out the politics of immigration and then also not figuring out how to properly unwind a decade of easy money? Well, it's, it's your, the question is, uh, is it better to pull the band-aid off quickly and sharply or one hair at a time? And we chose our monetary policy as one hair at a time. And Rick Santelli will say, Yes, there would have been carnage. It would have been horrible. We would have had a lot of people on it. But, but you got to think and put it in perspective. You know, at the height of the depression, I think we had a 25% unemployment rate. That wasn't going to happen. All right. Now, yeah, we could have had it 15, maybe 12. I don't know. We got as high as 10 or something. I can't, I can't remember exactly. But that was one out of every four people out of work that wanted to work. That's massive. So a lot of people like Rick would say it would have been better to just let the chips fall where they may in 08 because now. The chips will probably still fall, but it'll be greater because we've just delayed the pain. And I think that the biggest thing I worry about is there has to be a day of reckoning because, especially in places in like in Europe and to some degree the States, a lot of these businesses have been built on free money. So what are you going to do in Japan if you've been a proprietor for four years and your interest rate's been one and it doubles to two? Now that's a 100% increase of your borrowing. So the problem is, is that these people out there don't know what interest rate hikes really are and how to build a business around that. So my biggest worry is this, the percentage increase, not the actual amount in basis points, but this right. percentage increase of borrowing costs that can be thrust upon middle business, you know, the, the businesses in the middle <clears throat> where mom and pop are, are making their money, that could be what, that, that thing could get sandwiched and that's where we lose a ton of money and a ton, and there'll be carnage in that area because they just don't have the experience because it's not really, their fault, but they have to budget in the fact that you can see your borrowing costs go up by 300% in a very short period of time. And so the talk right now of tax cuts 2.0, if Republicans were to maintain control of, of uh, both chambers and so forth, d does that present some bulwark against the concerns that kind of lie in wait? Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it's hard because I, I'm, I'm a laugher right to some degree, right? It's better to cut taxes and, and let and, and give the power to the people and let them get you out of trouble than have the government always be the last resort and have the government get you out of trouble. I mean, I think that's a pretty big divide, you know, conservatives versus liberals. So I'm I like his ideas about you know let's give the money to the people and let them get the, get us out of trouble. Uh, and I think that's the first tax cut and, and to, to some degree the second one would do that. But I also am a little bit leery of the fact that we've. The deficit and, and what we've done as far as borrow money so far has been massive. And for all those people that hated Obama or didn't like his policy, um, we're spending money at a, at a pretty big rate, pretty big clip here. And how are we going to get the money? How are we going to get the money to spend? Right? We, we sell our bonds, but with the more bonds we sell, the, the worse price we get for them. Right? So that means interest rates go up. Then it goes back to that middle-income business person, right? So there's this big cycle out there that we really haven't gone into yet. We, the 10-year yield here has just gone over 3.03% 3, 3, 3 today. 
it didn't go over today, but we're around that 3%. The last time we did that was at the end of January. And you saw the hiccup we had in the markets then. Now, it's, um, now they're, you know, they're, they're comfortable with it, but are they comfortable with it at 3.5? Which is another huge increase on borrowing. So there's definitely some problems on the horizon when it comes to that. And I think that you know, the, middle, the middle class are the ones are going to pay that price. So the, the returns that people have seen in their 401ks since uh, Trump has been president, uh, you know, Dow hitting all-time highs, NASDAQ all-time highs, is this, uh, is this the result of this kind of easy money sugar high? Is it the result of increased productivity? Is it the result of the tax cuts and more people in the hands of uh, job creators and uh, those who uh, uh, are productive risk takers or uh, some combination of the three? And, and you know, how, how should people think about where to put their marginal retirement dollar? None of those things all happen at the same time. So free money comes first, okay? So the free money hits, and the, the, the average educated investor says, what do I do with it now? The, you know, there's no other place to put it except for the stock market. Right. So that's why you got the sugar high. The stock market was the first beneficiary of free money. Well, when Obama did that, he didn't follow it up with decent economic theory behind it, and because you, you need to have those numbers come in and bolster up where the equity prices or the asset prices have reached. To his credit, Trump, although he spent a ton of money doing it, he, we have seen, Carlos would be the one, the first person to tell you, he, we have seen our economic numbers start to catch up to where the stock market is actually trading. So that has been a good thing, because I always worry about the you stock market. You mean GDP growth? Yes, I mean, all those numbers, 3.9, you know, okay, as, as, as garbage as they may be, and I think you and I would agree on that. That's all we got to go off of, I mean, because I don't have my own team of people that are going to crunch them for me. But at the end of the day, to the outside world and to the average investor, his economic numbers are markedly better, faster, and that has supported the stock market. And the stock market, although it made its big run quickly, we've languished now for a while. And you know what? Going sideways in the stock market is a technical correction over time, right? So three years of no going nowhere and having those economic numbers come up to support it is a very healthy thing. And so what about uh, the numbers out uh, last week? $61,000, the new uh, median household income. So you saw a real rise in middle income, household income. Um, is that something that should be encouraging to folks? Yes, it absolutely does. And, and, and this is what I say a lot. You know, you can, what's more important to you? What you hear on the TV or how fat your wallet is? I mean, that's going to come down to, that's what November is going to be about. The rhetoric on the television versus how big my wallet is. And if, I mean, I just feel like the rational person is going to feel like they've got more money in their pocket. The numbers are at least saying that. There's more people at work that's saying that. Our GDP is saying that. So you've got to think that they're going to, the, the rational person is going to vote with their pocketbook like they usually do and and things would go well for the conservatives but the rhetoric has been ratcheted up to such a degree and there's so much angst i i, I don't know what's going to happen and and trying to, to like look at numbers that mean something versus the numbers that don't kind of the, right. the phony baloney numbers like uh we're talking about the unemployment rate or gdp gdp growth but particularly the unemployment rate and i know from previous conversations we would always talk about uh uh Wage growth. Where's the wage growth? If we, you know, if we're at full employment plus, then where's the wage growth? And we're finally starting to see some legitimate, measurable wage growth. So, is this a sign of what's to come, or, uh, 
you know, kind of how do you provide context to the numbers we're starting to see on wage growth, which is sort of the, the real indicator? I think wages are going to grow, but just like the housing market, I don't think anybody's going to get left behind, right? I think it'll be slow. And I think the new economic era that we're in now is slower, longer, right? It'll go in the right direction, but we're not going to see this hyper growth in the housing market that we saw in like the late 90s, like we did in the dot-com like in the late 90s. I think because of the situation that we're in, things are going to take a little longer and go a little slower. I don't think it's going to leave anybody behind. And another thing is that was interesting, and I've seen a lot of research about this lately, that in the 80s and 90s, you know, when it was the go-go 80s and 90s, the CEOs really went to school on shareholder return, shareholder value, and they began to work for the shareholder only, and the worker became a commodity. And so they would just run through and they, they would replace them with somebody else. They never raised wages. And that's still, to some degree, uh, in the, the mentality today, right? But if you go back in the 1950s, a large part of what a CEO would have said then is make sure my worker's happy, he's making a decent wage. And the CEOs weren't making as much as far as a percentage as, as more than the average worker. We need to see that get a little, come back in line a little bit here because we've lost touch with the worker. That's why the wages aren't going to go like everybody wants them to go because they've been commoditized and, and, that's, and that's a shame. So we're going to have to see these CEOs have a little bit more loyalty towards their workers and some of them are doing that but to some degree most you know the biggest degree is that they're not and I think that's going to be a problem that's why wages won't take off. Is that in a particular industry or you see that across the uh, sector? I think that's across the Dow or the you know, S&P 500 stocks. I mean I think if you ask a CEO right now on the street you know where's your loyalty like to my shareholders, shareholder value. I mean that's they're trained and to some degree, I totally agree with that. And that's why you see these jobs go overseas, because they're st always trying to maximize. You know, a good story is, is that in London, there's 20,000 streets and 10,000 places of interest. And these black cab drivers for 200 years have had to take this test called the knowledge. And it takes four years to understand all the streets and know where you're going and know the fastest way, traffic, whatever. Well, now the GPS is involved, and now Uber's involved, and now Lyft is involved. And you know what's happening? is that people have learned that this technology, although we're trying to always maximize our lives, if you really look at it, this GPS is telling me to take four right turns and five left turns to save a minute. And is your life worth that? I mean, you can just listen to a half a song, stay on the same road, and relax and get there. And so sometimes I think that we're just, we're always trying to maximize too much and we don't stop and smell the roses or realize the the effect of over maximization and what that does to the psyche. But you're not you're not uh, advocating that anybody go full de Blasio when it comes to <laughs> rideshare or anything. You're just no, sort of I'm, making a philosophical I'm point. The technology about, sometimes can yeah. be a negative because we don't realize that that maximization is taking something away that you're not really putting a value. Yeah, they're costs. Right. Right. They're costs right. to everything. There's yeah. trade-offs to everything. Right. That's that's called life. And <laughs> right, so, exactly. and, but people think technological innovation is a unmitigated good and then there are some costs to that that at least need to be contemplated and addressed if not and that doesn't necessarily mean retarding technological innovation but at least addressing the cost that it imposes i mean what would you have said about the, the film industry or cinemas you know 25 30 years ago when beta projector union vhs are all be gone oh, yeah, right? right i mean they're gonna be gone well no they've they've adapted they're different they're more expensive there's a you get a meal with it now but they're, they're thriving, they're still going. So maybe not in the way they were, but at the end of the day, there has to be some sort of uh, trade-off between maximization and, and, and then changing the way you do things, and then that's a, a better way forward. Uh, one sector in specific, specific I want to 
you to address is banking. And so after the crash, we saw a lot of banking consolidation. Um, but even more, it seems to me, and maybe this is just, um, this doesn't have enough historical perspective, but it seems to me banking consolidation, both in the sector and banking consolidation with government that bailed so many of the banks out, uh, directly or indirectly. And I, I wonder what your assessment is of all the guys on Wall Street, the Jamie Dimons and the Gary Cohens, who was a, an ec lead economic advisor to Trump uh, for the first 18 months of his term, and um, sort of the, the men and women of always on Wall Street and their influence on our economic system. Um, goes back a little bit to my point about shareholder value. Um, goes back to, a little bit to the fact that, uh, you know, they, although they're very, very intelligent, I mean, I, there were some drastic things that needed to be done in 08 to try to save the economic system. I get that. Like I said, I think that doing nothing was just not palatable enough to the, you know, to the, the politicians. Um, I, no, I don't like the idea that there could be some sort of Goldman Sachs influence on the government because that seems to be the, a lot of the case where we've seen a lot of these advisors come out of. Um, and, and they are intelligent, but I would say that a good example to me is Janet Yellen. I think she was a very, very, very intelligent person. But I think that she was still reading out of a 1955 economics book, and I think that she struggled with that because the world has changed so much around here, technologically speaking, and with what the banking system has done. Some of these younger guys coming out of the bank might have an idea about capital flows or better idea about capital flows than a 65-year-old professor at Harvard. And so they have value, um, but it's just about how much you want to maximize their value versus there are some things that we kind of miss when we do that. And there, there needs to be a better balance, but you know those guys... We're off to a good start, but there needs to be a better balance. So, Michael, speaking of Harvard professors, Michael Porter uh, became famous for his five forces that impact business. And in the modern era, in the last 40 years, there's been a sixth force that has really emerged, and that's the public sector, government. And so, um, you know, I, when you look at companies, when you look at investment opportunities, when you look at the landscape generally, the competition, Barriers to entry, uh, the other five forces that Porter, the other forces that Porter talked about versus government. Um, you know, which is the predominant force that you think is driving investment decisions, uh, capital, uh, 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 employment decisions, sort of the uh, the presentation of individual sectors, manufacturing, banking, et cetera, agriculture generally. I don't think that's a question. I mean, it's the government. Unfortunately, I mean, the government is, is, we've got now generations of people that think that the government, you know, government's the answer. In my day, maybe even in your day, you're younger than I am, but no, you know, no, you know don't worry, the government's here, said no one ever, right? I mean, it was always, when the government was involved, I mean, the, look at what the, the, uh, the contracts for our armed forces, you know, 80, $85 for a hammer, we've all heard those stories. Right. So that's the Reagan formulation. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. If it stops moving, subsidize it. <laughs> right, exactly that's right. That's where we're at. Yeah, and I think that, that they're, they're, they're the overarching, I mean, they're the big elephant in the room. There's no way we can get around it. I mean, especially with what they did with quantitative easing. I mean, people don't realize how shocking of an idea that was with what, you know, with what they did. And to take us off that sugar high, you have a right to be nervous. I mean, I, I, I was in... Uh, I was two hours outside of Chicago this weekend, got out for a quick, with my, with my uh, wife to get us a quick bite to eat, and in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I stopped at one of those roadside taverns in the middle of nowhere. And 
I walked in the tavern and lo and behold, somebody recognized me from TV. And before he said, hey, the cow guy's here, his next question was, when's the market going to crash? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And I, yeah. you know, I said, well. How much he, of my portfolio should I put in Bitcoin? Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. If it's not Bitcoin. Well, the Bitcoin was only popular in December when it was almost 20,000. Now nobody talks about it anymore. But, but it's still at, what, 6,000? Yeah, I know, which is still insane. I mean, and that's a whole nother, I mean, I don't even Cryptocurrency? Know. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think there's any space for cryptocurrencies. There is for blockchain technology, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, cryptocurrencies, I mean, I, look, I have to take so many financial licenses and exams to, to make sure that we're knowing where the money's coming from with all our customers, no money laundering issues. I mean, the government is, you know, the Patriot Act, and you, you can't spend a $10,000 from your bank anymore without telling you, you know, the bank where it's going. How, how is that going to go with cryptocurrencies? Well, but I mean, is it, one, one would argue, uh, some have, that uh, it's sort of like um, the internet as a communication channel. The FCC regulates the uh, TV waves and the radio waves, but then uh, Google and Facebook and YouTube pop up and they provide a communication channel to pipe and, and the streaming services to pipe through the same content unregulated. Well, and if it's unregulated, it's untaxed. Right. And if the government can't tax it, they'll stop it. But they haven't. I mean, on the, on the, on the, on the cryptocurrency state, side. On the cryptocurrency side, or really on the, the streaming, Netflix, well, no, uh, streaming, right, yeah, uh, right. Google, YouTube, Facebook side. But I think that we're getting to the point where they're, they're going to start to see what the missed opportunity, is, especially with cryptocurrencies. I mean, I think, I think streaming is absolutely the way forward. I, I, think, I think the big the networks are in, in trouble. I deal with some hedge funds that are in that space, and they tell me the same thing. It's kids don't look at stuff like you know. We used to wait every year for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to come on, right? I can watch right. it tonight if I or, want yeah, to. Yeah, my right? my my Thursday yeah, right. eight p.m. appointment right. television Everybody's show. Everybody's sitting down to watch Friends. Yeah, right? right. So if that's gone, those guys are gone. Oh, that's a tell. Yeah. Boy, friends. <laughs> so, well, we didn't. Have you were any, a Ross guy, uh, weren't yeah, you? Uh, no. <laughs> we didn't have it in London. I only saw the reruns when I got here. So that, that, they're going to be the dinosaurs, and I like what Netflix are doing, and I like what Apple will probably do with that too. I mean, that, Amazon, that, yeah, and Amazon, and, and so that's going to be a good disruptor, and, and we'll see where we go from there. I don't know what the next step is, but I do know this: the world is starving for content, and there's just not enough of it out there. And if you think about it in terms of percentages and in what we've created. 99% of all of the information since the dawn of time, since the, the, the explosion where we became Earth, has been created in the last two years. <laughs> it's pretty jarring. <laughs> Think about it. There's nothing jarring, yeah. I mean, so because of the well, so ramp up in technology and data, all of the data since the beginning of time has been created in the last two years. Well, so with the FANG stocks driving the market run up and what you just said, then how do you answer the guy in the bar that says, when is the crash coming? Maybe it's not coming. Well, you're going to have corrections. Yeah. But I would always say to them, since 1929, if you would have bought the high in the stock market every year, you'd be a billionaire. I mean, so it's just about timing, right? So that's the 70-year-old guy that asks the question. The 30-year-old guy shouldn't care. He should just continually plot as, as long as our population's growing. You know, as soon as you see that birth death rate change and flip, then you got something to be worried about. But it's all about timing. And they have the ratios. What you should do as you get older, and if you want to gamble more, you can. But I mean, generally speaking, the, 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 the ratio is if you're 40, you should have 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds. 
If you're 50, it should be 50-50. If you're 70, it should be 70 bonds, 30% stock. I mean, so, so you think those distributions hold? I think that they're still safe, and that's good. I mean, we, my, I, I, I was involved with a firm, and we followed the modern portfolio, modern portfolio theory of money management, which basically says you can't pick them. Mathematically, in 1955, I want a Pulitzer Prize for 57, proving you can't pick them. And so basically, they say, I'll take 10 asset classes, large cap, small cap, cash, real estate, whatever, right? Say 10. And every year, if you put, say, your $1,000, 100 in each, every year you take the winners and reinvest in the losers, you beat the S&P index 95% of the time. But it's boring and nobody wants to talk about it because right. it's way sexier to talk about fantasy football league or your fantasy stock league, right? CNBC, you can't go on CNBC today and say, and CBC won't have me because I look like a clown. <laughs> But you can't go on and go, uh, you can't pick them. Uh, you should have a balanced portfolio, and you should reinvest your winners and your losers every year, and you'll be fine, twice a year. See, that's why I'd be great on CNBC, because I wanted to short uh, uh, Tesla, and mm. you, know, you advised me against it. Now, because I think Elon Musk is Harold Hill, and uh, now, now, you know, now who's under criminal investigation? Well, he's, yeah, well, he's done that to himself, number one, and he hasn't had any competition. Daimler's getting involved, a bunch of other, you know, Audi's getting involved. And he's being propped up by the government. And he's been 100% propped up by the government. So this guy, uh, he's in trouble. And, and you know what? He's acting like a guy that knows he's in trouble. And I understand it because I would feel the same way as he did because for a while he was a darling. Now he's kind of forgetting. Arguably, you could say Tesla's not a car company. It's a technology company. Right. But he's it's, a, it's more, more really a flamethrower company, <laughs> right, as I right. understand. But they're moving they're moving on to SpaceX and going to you know leaving the leaving the Earth. Yeah, build like a tunnel with little homes for Rahm Emanuel uh, <laughs> under night in the very city of home. Chicago. Apparently, yeah. yeah. But I so I think you know he, he's in, he's in trouble. And you know what was a great example of how crazy the world is is that you have these Wall Street firms that are supposed to follow a stock and make a market in, and they give projections: buy, hold, sell, all that garbage, right? right which is another racket. But you had some respectable firms following Tesla, calling for 420, and then he went out and smoked it, right? 420, and you had some respectable firms calling for 190. So I mean, look it's at that. pretty big spread. Exactly, and, they, and you're supposed, those are supposed to be the real the guys that know. So that should tell you something when you've got such a disparity of views about where the way forward is. And I've always thought that he has never had any competition and the government was in his back pocket. And once those two things went away, he's in trouble. So if the, the old... Beautiful car, though. I mean, nice car. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it is. it's a cool car. Um, I mean, you know, when money is no object because it's the right. taxpayer's money, you can right. do all kinds of cool things, I suppose, if you're not bottom line sensitive. Um, I, so, I just wish I could get in one. <laughs> no, I think they got an SUV now. Oh, it's got to be a, a PHAT SUV. <laughs> so, but so if the traditional distributions of portfolio hold, then people worried about the uncertainty of the market, about unwinding easy money, just about kind of everything going on in this crazy mixed up world. Um, but just get get a Ameritrade account and uh, just uh, just you know take the 1929 uh, to present approach or what, what do you suggest? Well, that, depending on the age, yeah. But if you're that retiree, look, if you're 70 years old, what have you seen happen to your portfolio in the last six years? 
and it skyrocketed. Six years ago, if I would have told you that, you would have gone, Don, I'm out, get me out, I don't want to touch it anymore. Right. But human instinct and the way we act, we get greedier and greedier the higher it goes, and that's why we have crashes. So you have to remind people, if I would have told you where we were six years ago with the portfolio that you have and you haven't touched it since then, you would have eaten my right leg off for, for those type of returns and be happy and be out of the market. So you got to start thinking about protecting a little bit at least and taking your emotions out of it because the ball, the, the shoe's going to drop. You know, it's, it's not going to go up forever and it won't go down to zero either. And if you're 40, it doesn't matter. But if you're 70, it does. It's all about timing. And so you have to say, look, I'd have to, I have to protect the yellow caution lights. I've got to be out if you're 65 or 70. And with respect to fiscal policy in the political realm, if there was one thing you would advise the Trump administration to do or to accomplish between now and 2020, you know, to pursue with all of the resources at your disposal, what would that be? Well, he's to some degree, he's doing some of it right now. I think that getting that GDP, well, one thing he's failed on, but I th hopefully that will come around. We've got a little bit of a issue with retirees and the baby boomers going through. But once you get that that labor force participation rate, which nobody really looks at, because a lot of people don't really understand it, but once we get our productivity up, and that that number hasn't budged from Obama numbers since he's been in office. Yes, the GDP numbers have low well, 60s, 62.7 basically, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it's been at 65 and 66 before when we were humming. Right, he, if he's got to get that up there where our productivity is a lot better, and if he can do that, I think that I would really focus on our on the, on that number and getting that number up. Once we get some of these retirees with with the baby boomers going through, because that's going to be how we can get ourselves paid back sooner. When I talk about when the money that they're spending today, well, what do you do to get that number up? We're going to have to wait a little bit because we do have baby boomers. I mean, part of it is just nature and time. Um, that's that's probably a third of it. Cycling through the baby boomers. Yeah, the I mean, there's, there's, yeah, and that's going to be a third of it. We're going to have to suffer through a little bit of this technological revolution, like the industrial revolution, you know, because for productivity purposes. But it'll probably take 10 to 12 years. I mean, there's nothing he can do overnight. He's done the best he can overnight so far. There aren't any more gas pedals or levers he can push to get more out of the economy that he's done to date. Now he's going to try with these tariffs and other things like that, tax but cuts. It, yeah, and tax cuts. But at the end of the day. And I, and, I, and I say this all the time, I, I, just you and I sitting here having a cigar, we, we probably would have done a lot of the things he's done. I mean, maybe not to the extent, but look, I'll, I'll never understand why when the, when the proverbial crab at the fan with the 08 and 07 problems, Obama's first inclination was government's here and we're going to raise your taxes. I don't understand when I'm already on my knees and injured why you want to kick me in the mouth. I don't, I just, to me, I would have said that's a joke. It's, I, I read that wrong. You know, that's when taxes should be cut to 10% across the board, and let's get the people out there working. Let's go. But his answer was was government, and I still don't think the government is the answer. And I think that Trump's done a good job with regulation that way and tax cuts that way. And I mean, those are the things and the levers we can push. He doesn't have any more. He really doesn't. He has got your lady, Scott the cow guy. Fox Business News contributor because he's too much of a clown to be on CNBC. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, Scott, thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Against the Current. Appreciate Good it. Good to be here.